Psalm 16 is about David's trust in the Lord, and it's also a messianic psalm, prophetic of the Messiah. David's life was filled with challenges. I think we're first introduced to him where he's anointed to be the next king of Israel at a very young age. Some think that he was only like 15 years old when he's being anointed king. And then we see him going and fighting Goliath, the Philistine giant. And then he's enlisted into Saul's army and he becomes very successful, so successful that Saul becomes jealous of him and spends the next, some think, 10 plus years trying to kill David. So imagine being, first of all, knowing that you're gonna be the next king on the throne and yet you're running for your life from the current king and his army. And so it was filled with a lot of challenges. And then when he became king, he fought a lot of wars as well. And so a lot was going on in his life. And as we read through the Psalms, many of them are written by him. And this one is, is one of those where he proclaims his trust in the Lord, depending upon him. And as I mentioned, it's also uh, a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus. So let's go ahead and read through the Psalm, Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, we see in this David's trust and also a prophetic nature to the end of the psalm. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says David was convinced that because he had come to know and trust the Lord as his portion in life, he could trust him in the face of death. And we'll talk at the end of this how uh, this would, could apply to David and how obviously it's got its ultimate fulfillment with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't know the setting for the psalm as we do some of them. Some of them tell us in the beginning that he wrote this psalm, let's say, to when he was fleeing from his son Absalom or when he's fleeing from King Saul, but we don't, we don't know the setting for this psalm. All we see in the title is that it's a miktam of David. And I'll be flat out honest with you, I have no idea what that means, but I'll give you some things that I've read. And, and really what I've read, people seem to kind of feel the same way. We think it might be this, we think it might be that. In the NIV, it says it's probably a literary or musical term. 
So a literary term may be the genre of the poem that's put forth, a musical term, perhaps, you know, we've seen it some of the beginning of the Psalms where this is to be accompanied with stringed instruments or the eight string harp or with flutes, and, and it could be that as well. The King James has the footnote, it's a golden Psalm of David. And I was gonna say whatever that means, but, and I just said it, but I, then I wasn't going to say that. I'll tell you this though, Psalm 56 through 60 says the same thing, that they are a miktam of David, all of those written by David and referred to as a miktam. And each of those speak of David in great peril and yet proclaiming his trust in the Lord. So maybe it does have something to do like with the genre of, of what it is all about. And of course you see David's trust as we go back through the Psalm in verse one, preserve me, he says. Watch over me, O God, for in you I put my trust. His dependency was upon the Lord. And again, as I opened, uh, he faced a lot of challenges. You know, there were a lot of people who wanted to, to do away with him, and yet he put his trust in the Lord and, and, and cried out to the Lord to, for him to watch over him. And it, it reminds me, reminded me of Isaiah 52 when Isaiah was uh, prophesying of the exiles coming back from Babylon in Isaiah 52, 12. It says, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. When you leave Babylon, you're not gonna be running for your life. You're not gonna be running aimlessly, because the Lord's gonna go before you. He's gonna pave the way. And I think about that, you know, a prayer, God, pave my way, be, go before me, and also be my rear guard. Protect the scragglers that would be at the end that others would wanna take advantage of. Go before me, pave the way, and also uh, protect me from behind. When he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust, I get, again, I go to Isaiah, this time Isaiah 26.3, where it says, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The person who is focusing his, his mind upon the Lord, I'm looking to you, I'm trusting in you, there's going to be that peace that passes all understanding. When the world again is shaking around us, what do we need to do? We need to be focused on the Lord. And, and everybody, now is the time to be focused on the Lord prior to everything going crazy around us. Build that relationship with the Lord so that you can be strong, so that you can st stand strong in him. He says in verse two, oh my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Here we have again, two different words for Lord, as I mentioned prior uh, in previous studies. The first word Lord is in all caps, and that's telling us that it's the, it's the personal name of God, Yahweh. And, and his name means the eternal one, the existing one. He's the one who's always been, the one who always will be, and the one who currently is whatever his people need him to be. He is the I am. And so as, he, as we look at verse two, oh my soul, you have said to the Lord, to Yahweh, you are my Lord. That's the Hebrew word Adonai. And that means you are my sovereign, you are my master, you are my, as it's translated here, you are my Lord. And if he's the Lord, that makes David the servant, right? David is the servant. And he says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Any good that comes out of my life, Lord, it's because of you. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or 
shadow of turning. You know, anything good that you see coming out of my life, that's gonna be because of the Lord. Anything else, (laughs) what originates from me, again, I go to Isaiah, we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. It's because we're sinners. That's the whole idea. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so anything good in our life, it's what God is doing in our life. Anything uh, less than that is going to be, as it says, filthy rags. And, And I think this is what I think in Revelation chapter four, where the 24 elders who are taking their crowns off and they're they're casting them at the the foot of the throne. People, there are those that think the 24 elders represent the church or represent believers. And it's like what's been awarded to them, they're taking off and setting at the the foot of the throne. In essence saying, all all of this reward, the, the things you're rewarding me for, we cross the threshold, well done, good and faithful servant, all of that, it's because of you. It's because of you putting the desire in my heart, first of all, to do the right thing, and then the ability, the power to do that very thing. Revelation 4.11, they cried out, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they exist and, and were created, or as another translation says, for thy pleasure, they are and were created. In verse three, he continues on and he says, as for the saints who are on the earth, They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. When David speaks of the saints, he's speaking of the the believers. And those are the ones that he delights in. Uh, It's the word that's translated most of the time as holy. And the word holy means to be set apart. Like the um, vessels that would be inside of the temple, they were set apart. They were holy vessels. They were set apart for God's exclusive use, to be used just in, in the temple. And so that's how the believer is referred to, as one who is set apart, set apart from the way we used to be, set apart from the ways of this world, and set apart for God's exclusive use. It's the same idea when when we come into the New Testament. I I think the church over the centuries has done kind of a disservice uh, to the word saint, because uh, there have been those that have taken certain pious ones and, and elevated them to sainthood. And that's how we're kind of programmed to think of a saint. But the way the Bible defines a saint, it's anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ because you are a set-apart person for him. And so here in the Old Testament as well, David says, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. They are the set apart ones. Again, the word translated the majority of the time as holy. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 7, 6 of the children of Israel. For you are a a holy people. You are a set apart people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. This speaks of the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? God made the choice to choose these particular people. He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of present day Iraq, and brought him into the land of Canaan and promised to him and his descendants 
the land of Canaan. And part of that reason we find is because God's judgment would come upon the inhabitants of Canaan. Uh, God spoke to Abraham and said, it's not going to take place until the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's coming a day where judgment is going to come and it will be in the fourth generation when God, through Joshua, would lead the children of Israel into the promised land. They were the people that God chose to reveal himself to and to reveal himself through. He revealed himself to them by giving them his laws, the Ten Commandments and the various laws that we see. This is how we see what is right and wrong, what God says is right and wrong. But it wasn't supposed to stop with the children of Israel. They were supposed to be the conduit that the rest of the world would learn of God through. And it was also the Jewish people that God used to bring his son into the world so that the world could be saved. And so a set-apart people... Peter would use similar terminology, if not even reaching back and and inferring this passage right here and apply it to the church when he says in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, here's our word, a holy nation, a a set-apart nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We praise God for what he's done for us. He brought us out of darkness. He, he called us, we responded to the call and having come out of that kingdom of darkness, we now praise him. And notice how he refers to us, a chosen generation, royalty, a royal priesthood, kings and priests, a holy nation, a set apart people, his own special people. I like the way the New King James translates that. King James uses the word peculiar. (laughs) A peculiar people. I think that's probably accurate too, but I like a special people here. So David says, I delight in the saints. I delight in those, the excellent ones who are on the earth. But notice verse four. In contrast to that, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. So for the saints, I delight in them, but for the ungodly, I'm not even going to speak their name. Verse five, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. And for David, he was blessed. I mean, chosen of God and a blessed man a man after God's own heart. He was the standard by which all other kings were evaluated. Yeah, he served the Lord like his father David. He did not serve the Lord like his father David. And so David had a blessed inheritance. And yet when I read this right here in verse five, it doesn't seem like he's referring to his palace or his lot of land. He says in verse five, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. It reminds me of the Levites. When the children of Israel came into the land, the land was divided among the 12 tribes and they each got a a certain parcel of land in the land of Canaan, except the Levites. The Levites did not get any inheritance because their inheritance was the Lord. And the idea of that is they would serve at the tabernacle, later, later the temple. They would have cities sprinkled throughout the nation. And it seems like their job, their ministry was to teach the people about God and about his word. In Deuteronomy 10, 9, it says, Therefore, Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord 
is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. So what would you rather have? A hunk of dirt or the Lord? Yeah. So I think that's what's going through David's mind, kind of, oh, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance. And my cup, he'll say in Psalm 23, my cup runs over. The Psalms speak of the cup of salvation. I think the idea here is you fill my cup with blessings. You are my portion, the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. You uphold my lot. Now, if we were talking about property, God, you were the one that hangs on to that so I don't lose it. If we're talking about his relationship, Lord, you are the one that is going to keep me close. And I thought about that when I think of, you know, we, we're running our race. And, and if, has it ever crossed your mind, am I really going to make it all the way to the end? Or am I going to fail between now and then? And I'm just reminded of what we read in scripture, like the apostle Paul said, I know in whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. My trust is in him. He's the one that's gonna hold me together. And like Philippians 1.6, we can be confident of this very thing, that he who's begun a good work in you, he's gonna complete it. He's gonna finish the project. So Lord, you're my inheritance, you're my cup, you maintain my lot. And then he goes on to say in verse seven, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. I will bless the Lord. Some translations say, I will praise the Lord. I think the idea is being a blessing to the Lord is going to be pleasing to him. It's a way to praise him. And he's blessing him for the counsel that he gets and the instruction that he gets. And I do believe God will guide us. Do you, if we look to him? I don't have this one on the screen, but if you know it, say it with me. Proverbs 3, verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. It's a promise there, isn't it? If we look to the Lord, not just for the big things, but even for the little things, he will direct us. And I tell you what, I think so often he speaks in a still, small voice, and we need to be quiet in order to hear his voice. And what I mean by that is get the distractions out, be able to get before him where we can sit before him and listen and get our agenda out of the way, our pride out of the way and sit and listen, and I do believe, I know he will guide us. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. It seems to be a theme that goes throughout the Psalms, like at the end of Psalm 15, he who does these things shall never be moved. You're gonna be able to stand, you're gonna run this race, and you're gonna be able to finish it strong. And then this last section, as it, as it segues here to the prophetic, Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. That's the Old Testament word for the grave, the place for the abode of the dead, the place of the departed spirits. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. I wanna read this from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Preservation from the decaying grave is the idea 
behind both David's and Jesus' experience. But with David, it came through a deliverance from death, whereas with Jesus, it came through a resurrection from death. So in other words, what he's saying, speculating, is that as David's writing this, perhaps what he's saying is, Lord, watch over me, preserve me, oh God, I'm putting my trust in you and I know you're gonna keep me safe. You're not gonna allow my enemies to kill me and me end up in the grave, possibly. But as he's speaking prophetic of Jesus, it's saying that Jesus, though he will go into the grave, he will not decay because he will come out of the grave. And it speaks of the resurrection. How do we know this speaks of the resurrection? The way we know is because it's quoted in the New Testament. This is like the passage for the resurrection of Jesus that both Peter and Paul use. And we're going to keep our finger here, but we're going to go to the book of Acts and take a look at those passages. So Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the birthday of the church. This is the Feast of Pentecost, and this is where the Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples who are in the upper room. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak with tongues. They come down into the city, and there are people there that are gathered from all over the Roman Empire, as the Jews would do, because anybody 20 years old and above were required to go to the three annual feasts. So here they are at the Feast of Pentecost, and they hear the disciples speaking in their native language. So the common language would be Greek, but they would have their native languages back wherever they came from, whether it was Rome or whether it was over in the East. And so they hear them speaking in these languages that that they knew they could never know, and yet they're sitting there and they're declaring the wonderful works of God. So what it does is it arrests their attention. And Peter uses it as an opportunity to tell them what's going on. They're saying, oh, these guys must be drunk. And Peter's like, no, this is a fulfillment of what Joel said. In Joel chapter two, where God said, I'm gonna pour out my spirit in the last days. This is a fulfillment of what's taking place. And then Peter brought them the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And that's where I wanna take it up in chapter two, beginning from verse 22, where Peter says to the crowd, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So he says that God attested in verse 22 to Jesus, his life and ministry, how by the miracles, by the wonders, by the signs. And then he says, you guys know this because you saw it. You knew what was going on. And then verse 23 says, and this verse 23, it it speaks of the sovereignty of God. In other words, God's will is going to be accomplished. But I also think it speaks to the free will of man. Verse 23, him being delivered. And that doesn't mean being rescued. It means being delivered up to be put to death. Him being delivered, notice, by the determined purpose. It was God's predetermined plan that Jesus would die 
for the sins of the world. That's why he came to this earth. He came to bear our judgment. It was God's plan. But notice, he goes on to say that you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Doesn't he seem to like have them bear the brunt, the responsibility for what? You're the ones who took him. You're the ones who delivered him up by your lawless hands and delivered him over to be crucified. And so in one sense, you've got this sovereign plan of God. It's going to happen either way, because this is God's sovereign plan. And yet at the same time, man's responsible for what he's done. He's got a free will and he made a choice. And as some have, have, have spoke of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, they're like two pillars that go up. And then once they get lost in the clouds where we can't see, they cross and it makes sense. <laughs> but on this side, it's like, I don't fully understand it, but there's one word I didn't comment on there in verse 23, and that's the word foreknowledge. You have to realize God is so much smarter than we are. He knows everything. And so God has his predetermined plan. Man has his free will. And God knows the end from the beginning. I'm not trying to say I understand it all, but that kind of helps me a little bit as I look at it. Anyway, here Peter is presenting Jesus to them. Jesus was attested by God as through his miracles and so forth. You guys put him to death, but it didn't stop there. Verse 24, God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The grave could not hold him down. And this is where Psalm 16 comes into play because again, you're not gonna leave my soul in Sheol. You're not gonna leave me in the grave. You're not gonna allow your Holy One to see corruption. Why? Because you're gonna bring me back out of the grave. And notice that's what he quotes here, beginning from verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. Hades is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol, meaning the place of the departed spirits where the dead would go. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So you can see, I mean, there's our passage right there that Peter is grabbing to, to lay forth for what has taken place, the death and the resurrection, going back to Psalm 16. And then, and then he comments on it, beginning from verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to the day. In other words, he's in the tomb still, and his body did see decay. So he was left, if you will, in Sheol. Therefore, verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So David, as he's mentioned, he's a prophet. He was prophesying of what would take place. And he makes mention here that God had sworn an oath to him that one of his descendants would reign upon his throne. And of his kingdom, there would be no end. David knew the Messiah was coming from his line. And so he prophesied in Psalm 16 of the coming of the Messiah that he would die 
and that he would rise again from the dead. The resurrection is the main message of the apostles as we go through the book of Acts, because that's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died for our sins and he rose again from the grave. He died to bear the judgment that we deserve. There's no way any of us could ever make it on our own. We could never be good enough. So he died to pay that price, but it doesn't stop there. He rose again from the grave, showing that he'd conquered over sin and death, showing that he was the one he claimed to be. Remember, he made some very bold statements. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the religious leader said, well, what sign do you show us, seeing you make these claims? And what did he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He gave the resurrection as the sign. And so his resurrection from the dead, it's crucial as far as who he claimed to be. So he died, and he died for our sin. He rose from the grave, showing us that he will never die again. And because he lives, guess what? We will live as well. So that's the good news that we have here. So that's Peter, how he uses Psalm 16. Now let's go to Acts chapter 13, where we see the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 13, where he's on his first missionary journey. Paul is in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. And as Paul would do, he would often rehearse. And we, we, this is one, I think, the longest sermon we have of Paul's here in the book of Acts, but he would rehearse the history of the nation of Israel. And the reasoning behind that is, again, to show that God sovereignly chose these people to reveal himself to and to reveal himself through and that the Messiah would come into the world. And so he rehearses the history of the nation of Israel, the promise of the coming of the Messiah, and then he makes it clear that this Jesus is the one that God predicted would come. He was put to death under Pontius Pilate, but he was raised again from the dead. And I just want to take it up. Well, let's just take it up from verse 30 of Acts 13. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And verse 32, and we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it also is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, and here's our passage, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So he uses Psalm 2, first of all. You are my son, today I've begotten, I've begotten you. We talked about this when we did Psalm 2. This was a coronation psalm. This was the psalm where the king was brought forth and he was crowned and the resurrection is Jesus conquering sin and death. He's brought forth, raised up as the conquering king. And then again in verse 34, and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. In other words, he is alive forevermore. He has spoken thus, and this is a quotation from Isaiah 55. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Isaiah 55 starts out, ho, anybody thirsty? Then come and you can purchase without cost. 
that which will quench your thirst. How can you purchase something without cost? It's, it's given, yeah, it's been paid for. It's a gift that's given to you. And this is what it says in Isaiah 55, verse three. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And notice, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. So when he speaks of the sure mercies of David, what's he talking about? An everlasting covenant. As we come to the Lord's table today, we're going to be recognizing Jesus' death for us and his death ushered in the new covenant, the everlasting covenant. The first covenant, the old covenant, was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It showed us God's standards, God's laws. It was never intended to save anyone because the problem, not on God's end, but the problem on our end. And God predicted in Jeremiah chapter 31 that he was going to bring a new covenant. And this was 600 years before Jesus came to this earth. A new covenant that he was going to bring and that covenant would mean the forgiveness of sins, that our debt would be paid. And as we take the cup here, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. His death ushered in the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, so we can be forgiven, referred to as the sure mercies of David. Why? Because it was through David, according to his humanity, that the Messiah would come. And so that's the idea of what Paul is saying here. But then in verse 35, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, he's going to die, but he's not gonna stay dead. Verse 36, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and notice, saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. In other words, David, David's body decayed, but Jesus' body did not because he wasn't there long enough. Therefore, and this is the important part, verse 38, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The word justified means to be declared innocent. We are all guilty. We all fall short of the glory of God. But you can be justified, how? By believing, by believing in the one who came and laid his life down, bearing our judgment so that we can be forgiven. So how does a person get their life right with God? I just do the best that I can. I work as hard as I can. I'm better than my neighbor. You guys should really see my neighbor. He is really bad. I'm better than, God does not grade on the curve. It's perfection and none of us are perfect. That's why we need Jesus. And that's the whole idea here. So you couldn't be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses would be the idea of, I'm gonna keep God's standards perfectly, but none of us can, none of us have. And so that's why we need Jesus. And that's the, that's the crucial part of all of this. You know, we're learning about God's word. We're learning about his goodness. But I'll be flat out honest with you. If you've come out today and you've never trusted Jesus as your savior, you've never become a Christian, that's what you need to do in order to have your life right, be forgiven, go to heaven when you pass from this life because the end will come. It will come, it's come for every single person, except Elijah and Enoch, I get that, but it's come for every single person other than those two. Let's go back to Psalm 16 as we close out here. 
with just this final verse. Verse 11 of Psalm 16, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You will show me the path. Jesus spoke of two paths. He spoke of the broad way and he spoke of the difficult way. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he said, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. We have two paths set before us. Every single one of us, I know if we're honest, we know that's true. There's the way to go with God and then there's our way. And I knew that before I was a Christian. I knew when it was being preached to me that I need to get my life right with God. I knew I was on the wrong way, but I chose to be there because of my stubbornness and pride. And what it takes to become a Christian, I think, is humbling ourselves and repenting and saying, God, I have blown it. I've gone my way. I need you. Please forgive me. And I am going to follow you to the best of my ability. That's what it means, surrendering over to the Lord. Remember, Jesus said, that he is the way. You know, we talk about the two ways. The narrow way, the difficult way, is the way of Jesus. He didn't say, I'm a way. He didn't say, I, uh, I know the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the true way, isn't he? That really leads to life. And as it says here in verse 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. You know, abundant life starts on this side, doesn't it? Abundant life starts when we receive Christ as our savior. That's when we truly begin to live. And that's when we keep our eyes focused on him. You know, if there's turmoil going on around, if, if your life is like burdened down, remember that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We need to get our eyes focused on him. And so we can have that, that fullness of joy in this life. And then at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's an eternity coming. And this is just a, just a short little bit of our history. But that day's coming where we're all gonna be together and all this gunk is gonna be behind us. Look forward to that day. Amen, amen. Well, that's it. God is good all the time. Amen. Why don't we stand just so you can stretch your legs for a moment. And then I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward. And during this time, we're gonna be passing out the elements of communion. And I'd like to ask you to hold on to them. We'll partake of them together. But in all seriousness, if you haven't trusted Christ as your savior, if you're backslidden and you need your life right with God, then just bow your heart during this time and just ask God, ask God, get your life right with God. This is the time to do it right now. Lord, we want to thank you for the time we could spend in your word. Lord, we want to thank you for the truth that we find in it, the peace that we can have by keeping our eyes fixed on you. And Lord, I pray especially for those that are here today. Lord, if there's anybody who's, who's not yet right with you, I pray, Lord, that they would cry out in the privacy of their own heart right now and receive your peace, make their peace with you. And Lord, I pray for the world that we live in right now. God, we need you so desperately. Lord, we pray for your mercy, oh God. 
May your mercy flood through this land. We don't deserve it in our country. None, no one does. But Lord, you are the merciful and gracious God. And we would just ask for that. Lord, please equip each one of us. Help us to be your light reflectors in this world. Help us to be salt, that preserving influence. Help our lives to be attractive to those who don't yet know you, that they might want what they see in each one. We love you so much, Lord. We look forward to that day when you come back. And all of this is behind us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice, loving us more, laying your life down for us. We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.